Imagine this. You've just been through an insane boat wreck. You barely survived. There are hundreds dead around you, and you've managed to make it onto one of the makeshift rafts that survived this crash. You're being towed by a lifeboat, and everything is chaos. And all of a sudden, you see the lifeboat get further and further and further away. They've cut the ropes. They're no longer towing you and everyone else on this raft. You're alone in the middle of the sea. If you can imagine that experience, you can imagine the story behind the painting we're talking about today. The Raft of the Medusa, completed in 1819 by French Romantic painter and lithographer Theodore Garicot. This one is quite a story, folks. So buckle in and let's get started. Hello, honeys, and welcome to our show this week. I hope you all are comfy and cozy and ready for a new episode. We are getting a little heavy this week in the sense that we are getting into politics, but don't worry, we are not starting any over-the-turkey fights this Thanksgiving. We're talking very, very old politics, like 19th century, so... This one is uh, this one is family safe. In particular, we're looking at some unexpected parallels between the political criticism in Gary Cole's Raft of the Medusa and in two of Goya's Aquitaine Etching series. Those two artists are separated by nearly 50 years and many stylistic changes across those years, yet they have some really interesting uh, commonalities, particularly their striking styles, their abilities to raise a viewer's anxiety and sense of empathy, and their ability to satirize the vices of their respective higher social classes in ways that moved the public. This episode, we're talking through Gary Cole's work in order to understand an art historical legend and how its impacts resonated long after the controversy inspiring his painting faded. This week we're going to try something a little different. I'm going to cite my sources at the top of the episode as well as posting the usual source list doc in order to make sure I'm giving everyone their credit as we go through um, and I'm quoting from various people here. So first of all, all my sources for the raft include an article by Alicia Duplessis for Art in Context called The Raft of the Medusa, Theodore Garicol, A Romanticism Analysis, an article for Smart History by Dr. Claire Black McCoy called Theodore Garicol, Raft of the Medusa, an article for Britannica.com updated in 2023, again called The Raft of the Medusa, once more, a Wikipedia page bearing the name of the painting, The Raft of the Medusa, and another article by Sangshal Shin, uh, who wrote about the contemporary and memory of disaster as embodied in that painting. And that uh, article was published in the Journal of the Association of Western Art History in 2017. 
For Goya, my sources include Los Disparates, a Wikipedia page, then the Exhibition Halls page at the Museum of Fine Arts of Acarina's website had quite a bit of information on their um, Goya Aquatints Hall that I used. There was also an article, uh, really an exhibition summary, by the Wallach Art Gallery from their, uh, I believe it was 1989 exhibition of print series of Francisco Goya. And finally, I used the Glasgow University Library Special Collections Department's Book of the Month Special Collections webpage from August 2006, which talked about Goya's prints in great detail. Okay, all that said, let's get started. This painting is a pretty big deal in art history because it's one of the first more overt references to a political event with a sort of critical eye that is on record. It is certainly one of the first to come out of post-revolution France. So it, it had a huge, stirring, almost scandalous kind of impact by so... Um, so realistically depicting the tragedy of this event. So what is the event? As I mentioned, the painting's narrative is based on a true story. What happened was a captain accidentally ran the French naval frigate, and a frigate, I did look this up for us, is a, a type of ship that was used as like a convoy escort. It's not as big as a destroyer, and it tends to have a whole bunch of different kinds of arms on it. So this French naval sh ship, the Medusa, is ran aground accidentally by its captain on a sandbar off the coast of West Africa, what would today be Mauritania, on the 2nd of July in 1816. The ship's carpenter could not repair it. It was just way too damaged. So somebody... We don't know who. I'm guessing potentially these same people, but it's not on record at least. Uh, someone decided that a French governor, his family, and only other high-ranking passengers should fill the six lifeboats, which, much like the Titanic, were far too few for the amount of people on board. The remaining 150 passengers colonists and low-ranking military men packed onto a about 65 by 23 foot raft made by this same carpenter from the masts of the Medusa, which was clearly not up to the task. There are reports that it was partially submerged once it was fully loaded with all of these people. At first, the raft is towed behind the lifeboats but the ropes were literally cut on them because those in the lifeboats were worried that the raft was slowing them down. So the people in the lifeboats ultimately decide to just leave the people on the raft to their fates uh, in, in order to try and increase their chances of survival, which is a pretty controversial decision in and of itself. Eventually, 15 people so less than 10% survive on this raft. 15 are rescued by the Argus, which is a tiny ship featured in the background of this painting. 
but eventually only 10 survive their injuries, their illnesses, and so on. So this is just a complete humanitarian disaster, total catastrophe of life. So this wreck is, you know, international news. It's a scandal. Everyone's talking about it. Everyone's talking about how it could have been different, how the loss of life could have been avoided. And it's in that context that Garrico begins this work. He completes it when he is age 27 because he's just fascinated by the entire thing. Keep in mind, at this age, Garrico would have been young enough to believe in the ideals of the early French Romanticism, which were not too far off from those of the French Revolution, and he would have carried the scars from his experiences with that rebellion, that revolution, with him. So as I mentioned in our very first episode, romanticism is very heavy on the drama, the high emotion, and chaos. So a story like this, particularly displaying a moment of what it might have been like on that raft, is very logical for him to choose. It would have allowed him sort of naturally to draw upon those three elements, the drama, the emotion, the chaos, that already exist in this this tragic narrative. However, it also makes sense in a sort of parallel about seeing the world through reason or through emotion. That is the split between the neoclassical and the romantic movements going on at this time. So there there were people who saw this whole accident as an issue of logic. They were concerned that the captain did not have enough experience, enough knowledge to actually you know, handle this task of, of being the captain of this ship, which is a point we'll circle back to in a little bit here. But there's also the emotional toll of just how could the captain, how could all of these passengers who got in the lifeboats let this happen? So not only is it tied really closely to the movement that Gary Coat was involved in, but it also relates to this bigger cultural split within French society of whether to view this as a problem of practicality or a problem of human selfishness. And that emotional pull was even stronger because of just really the entirety of the scandal of this event. There's the obvious that it, you know, was attributed to the captain and crew's incompetence the ship was was a, a symbol that made the entirely new, still not totally solid French government look super bad because it showed proof of what people had suspected at that time that the captain was appointed because of nepotism, because of favoritism rather than skill and experience. There were also, however, the horrors of survival that came out from those ultimate 10 that lived through injuries, illness, etc. On this raft, there were, there were so many who died of dehydration, of starvation, 
at one point the things got so desperate that the crew left on that raft turned to cannibalism and so the entire thing was just horrifying and and to have a physical image that captured that horror was a very very powerful thing for the french people to unite around gary Coe really wanted to do this incident and this story justice though so he went through extensive research before he began the painting he conducted interviews with the survivors he produced uncountable prep sketches he created scale models of the raft and he even went to morgues and hospitals to view dead flesh firsthand in order to replicate it as accurately as possible on the canvas. The painting, although it was something of a rallying point for the French public, was, was quite controversial on its release, though not necessarily for reasons we might expect today. The first one, probably most obvious, is that it was a break from the incumbent neoclassical school. It's one of the first French romantic paintings of the era. So it was beyond people's expectations in a stylistic sense. It was considered to have too much turbulence, was actually the word I found used a lot, to be considered as classical as its structure somewhat suggests. So a lot of people had issues with, for example, there being, quote unquote, too many corpses in the pile visible herein. Another issue was that uh, it was seen as, yes, a critique of an immoral moment. However, that was also somewhat inappropriate. This was a time where history paintings, as they were called, a painting of any moment in actual recorded history, it was thought that they should teach a lesson of moral virtue, whereas this is a scene of horror. The suffering figures are not even looking at the viewer. They're not facing the viewer. They're in this dark, dramatic light, whereas most of the deceased bodies facing or turning towards us you know, obviously have passed. And so this, this confrontation with death very face-to-face -face was shocking for a lot of people and very uncomfortable as well. This was particularly a huge point of contention. As Sanchal Shin argues in the Journal of Western Art History, quote, in this painting, Garikov sought to embody a new type of painting that featured a direct expression of the contemporary personal sufferings and a sense of loss, end quote. So viewers are really just struck in a way that they have rarely, if ever, been before by the horror, the ugliness of this situation with the, the visual power of the painting. And also because, again, of that drama. Gary Coates sets this painting in the moment of a dying hope. The first time the, the Argus passed by the survivors and did not pick anyone else, else up uh, in order to maximize the human drama 
of this moment. He takes a historical truth and uses it to make the the narrative all the more upsetting and all the more hopeless. Finally, it's considered controversial even kind of to this day. It's It's got a certain infamy because the painting brings traditions of history painting into the contemporary. So Gary Colt takes a rare risk by by using a subject matter that has an inherent political critique of the current regime, of the current situation, which has just you know not been done. No one has ever done a history painting of an event that happened within five years of that painting's completion. So he just completely breaks the rules and everyone is shocked by it. In fact, Art in Context quotes a a writer as having summarized this event as he drew dramatic events from real life on a grand scale, and as a draftsman, he found ideas in the most mundane topics, end quote. So Gary Cote was already somewhat known for taking risks, for painting very contemporary subjects, and for really, as I said, diving into the contemporary personal sufferings, senses of loss, so on. But the fact that he took the those topics, the loss especially, and applied it to a scene of lower class people was really quite something. It was it was new entirely. Finally, another break from tradition, especially history painting tradition, is that there is no one obvious hero figure. There are just many ordinary people reacting to this unfolding life or death crisis. The painting is so stirring, so anxiety driving, because it tugs at the basic human instinct to survive. It pulls at our hearts of the pressure, like, how would you handle being in that situation? How could you, each one of us, deal with attempting to live under such dire circumstances? Another reason is that the painting prominently features two black figures which were thought to be something of a reflection of Gary Cole's, um, excuse me, abolitionist views. But they're also kind of foregrounded, which is very unusual in paintings of this day, with the rare exception of perhaps uh, portraits of political encounters between, say, African um, kings and maybe European diplomats. That's pretty much the only other time that black figures are featured as prominently. And so to put black and white figures on this same life or death footing was a a humanizing element that was very unexpected. And that certainly caught people's attention as well. Finally, it was so stirring because as Britannica.com points out, quote, 
Gary Koch was something of an exception, but he was separated from his immediate predecessors both by temperament and the sincerity of his approach. Individual suffering rather than collective drama is vividly portrayed in the raft of the Medusa, end quote. So even though everyone on the raft is, is in this same deadly situation, they all have individual reactions. You're not going to see the exact same fight, flight, or freeze response from any of the living figures on this raft. Each one is either trying to take the lead and control the very small sail they have, Others are maybe trying to hold someone else onto the raft, despite the waves tossing them around, so on and so forth. So it's possible to connect with each person, each character on this raft, as much as it is with their circumstances. There's a very high level of empathy created with these characters that is somewhat atypical for a history painting as well. So the kind of ending to this story is that the newly restored Bourbon monarchy is blamed for the ineptitude of both themselves as well as the captain and crew of this ship. It's a, it's a really bad look, and it threatened the early reputation of this very newly stable government. The public is all the more livid when they find out that this same captain hadn't sailed in 20 plus years. 20 plus years! So they expected that he was um, appointed because of favoritism or some other shady method, and this disaster is such concrete proof of that, that it, it was really embarrassing almost to to be proven so right about this captain's um, inability to do his job. More importantly, though, the French still did not trust their royals nor their navy, and this was a very easy example that they could point to to say they were right. The captain and crew abandoned them and did not even report this raft still floating out in the ocean when the lifeboats were eventually rescued. So the raft um, occupiers were potentially out at sea for much longer than they needed to be. The casualty rate could have been drastically lower, but the captain, the crew, the high-ranking passengers did pretty much everything wrong, sadly. Eventually, the French public makes good with their government, they figure things out, and this just goes down in history as a big embarrassment from a government that was still very much putting itself together and still had a lot of room for improvement. The legacy of the painting, however, is a bit more enduring. It is occasionally still criticized for being gruesome, death-centered, and so on, especially in the contemporary France at that time. And interestingly, 
Bourbon or liberal sympathizers respect, uh, reacted either negatively or positively depending on exactly their political alignment. So the Bourbon supporters were real, real upset about this um, because it felt like, I guess it probably felt like what Trump sympathizers feel like when they see Trump memes these days. They they felt like, you know, how dare you, mer, 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 mer. I'll probably have to cut that, won't I? Okay, well, anyways, the liberal sympathizers, however, are like, heck yeah, expose them, show them for how terrible and incompetent they are. Um, they're very excited to see proof that this monarchy is not going to go their way and, and to have sort of ammo in their tanks. Despite its mixed reviews in France, I really think the best word for it on its release, at least, is just straight up infamy in France. It was a very big success in England. This is definitely still a time where France and England are very competitive with each other. And so England was like, yay, woohoo, we love showing the French uh, government as inept. They were all over it. The painting is now owned by the Louvre. You can find it there or on its website if you, you know, can't just afford a, a quick jog over to Europe, but it is visible. And I would highly recommend spending some time with the image to really understand why it provoked such a strong political as well as emotional response when it was uh, first completed. All right, honeys, I wasn't sure if we were going to have time, but it looks like we do. So we're going to also look just about 50 years into the future, and we're going to talk about a few different series by Goya of aquatints and etchings on paper. These two series are very neat. I got to see a couple of them in person in the Acarunia Museum up in the northwest of Spain when I was there this summer. And uh, definitely worth a, a chat about as they are both very much focused on human flaws and human vices and tie very closely into our sort of morality and politics theme here. So let's begin. Although many people know Goya best by his 1823 painting, Saturn Devouring His Son, Goya was actually amongst the first to be considered by art historians as a fully mastering the possibilities of etching. In fact, the Fine Arts Museum of Acarunia, which I mentioned a second ago, states, quote, combining the techniques of etching and aquatint, Goya created an impressive collection of prints grouped in four series. The Capriches, a series of offbeat prints depicting an ironic intention. The Disasters of War, obviously kind of showing the horror of war. The Follies, fantasy intriguing representations. And a Tauromachia, spreading the different feats and sorts of bullfighting. End quote. What's kind of interesting is these four series were brought about in a really unusual way, well, I guess not unusual in that they are somewhat parallel to what was going on in the artist's life, but 
certainly an unusually dark reflection of those parallels. More and more frequently towards the ends of his life, particularly in his post-illness-induced hearing loss, and the suspicions for that hearing loss, that illness, range from polio to syphilis to lead poisoning. We don't really know exactly what caused it. Um, or more often, darker and satirical works, more often set in a sort of horror movie version of the daily lives of contemporary Spaniards. In fact, the Glasgow University Library article I cited states that, quote, his characters often twisted, grizzled, and contorted depictions of the poor, the ignorant, or the insane arguably reflected the mounting social tensions between the old, quote, black Spain of tradition and superstition and the modernizing influence of an increasingly rationalizing Europe, end quote. So there certainly was a degree of, of societal morality that he was attempting to call out, a poor societal morality, that is. But there was also a, a consideration given to his Spanish heritage, the cultural changing that was going on in terms of superstition and how things such as vices might appear in an older sort of style versus a newer one. He was interested in kind of capturing the middle ground between the two. A good sort of summary of these four series then is that they are images of an autonomous world inhabited by beings who display the full gamut of human fallacies like lust, stupidity, Ironically, superstition, greed, laziness, any of the vices and more that you could possibly imagine. Of the four, I'd like to focus on just half, Los Capriches and Los Disparates, better known as the Follies. We'll go in alphabetical order here, since they're so nice and arranged like that. First, Los Capriches. Los Capriches was completed between 1797 and 1798 and first published in book format in 1799. The series is made up of 80 etchings and aquatints depicting a wide variety of subjects including the clergy, sex workers, and witches. So who is who in all of these different figures that are suffering under some sort of vice, whether that be an embodied vice who is attacking or kind of haunting, manipulating them in some way, or uh, perhaps not a human form, but maybe an animal depiction of some vice. So you may see bats, or you may even see vices depicted as demons or gremlins. Really, they're, they're just designed to make the viewer very uncomfortable because they look as awful as the immorality of those vices would have been considered at that time. But like I said, regardless of these many forms that the vices could take, they still attack with the same vigor, clergy members, 
politicians, business owners as much as they do witches, the poor, sex workers, so on. So Goya really insinuates a sort of universality of human error uh, and flaws in human nature that, that was really unusual and significant. And in fact, that Glasgow U uh, library article states, quote, early commentators often read his etchings as direct allegorical satires of prominent people within the Spanish establishment, end quote, including the queen. That author, however, Hughes makes the argument that their reading of the Capriches, quote, suggests a far more general critique of humanity where people continually delude themselves and others through a series of formalized and socialized dissimulations, end quote. And then sort of continuing on to say, quote, highlighting the mutual deception being undertaken by the two protagonists, end quote, as the... Um, subject of the vice and the vice itself often appear as two separate embodied entities. So funny enough, the title itself references an art historical tradition of invention and fantasy. So Goya is able to use this umbrella term within the series to explore through invention fantasies of both moments where morality is at stake as well as what morality may look like, literally, physically look like in various situations. He also uses it to make many, many, many uh, different social critiques. He targets religion, morality, love, ignorance, marriage, superstition. He really goes after everything in that particular series because he has the linguistic room to do so but also in the universality he treats his subjects with the because he's going after everybody equally basically no one group can get mad at him it's almost like a freedom of speech cop-out before freedom of speech was really a universal thing the second series we're discussing, Los Desbrates, or The Follies, was first published by the Royal Academy of Fine Arts of San Fernando in 1864 under the title, quote, The Proverbios, because the titles in this edition are all Spanish proverbs. However, the current title is the original suggested by Goya himself. This one consists of an album of 22 prints, originally 18, though four works were added later, and they were the last major series of prints created by Goya, creating during the last years of his life, 1815 through 1824. Many of his contemporary critics saw this series as a continuation of both Los Capriches and The Disaster of War, so this one was actually colloquially referred to as the emphatic Capriches. Despite the nominal reference in that nickname, though, this series really stands out for several reasons, really. The high degree of fantasy, which surpasses even the other series, the presentation of very nightmarish scenes, the grotesque and monstrous aspects of the characters that inhabit it even more so, again, than in the other series, and it's 
lack of logic, or at least they're very dreamlike logics, things that don't quite make sense. And they're more often than not critiques of various establishments. This may be because Goya had a little more free range with this series. They were produced without a patron, and so Goya was able to caricature many more vices and or politics of his contemporary society without necessarily having to worry about somebody being upset about the results. You know, he didn't have any potentially unhappy customers to deal with. These particular vices and politics are often embodied by not quite lovers, um, imperfect couples, you might say, gluttonous monks and cruel clergymen, victims of the Inquisition, sex workers, and other very disenfranchised or overly sinful characters. A particular example of a work in this series that speaks to some of those political critiques includes Desastres de la Guerra, published posthumously in 1863. That imagery was inspired by contemporary events like the Napoleonic invasion of Spain, the Madrid famine of 1811 through 1812, and the repressive regime of Ferdinand VII. Now, Goya didn't just satirize and make these critiques just for the sake of them. He did so with a very serious sense of responsibility and purpose. So the Glasgow University Library, in fact, puts forth the quote that Whereas today many people are perfectly happy to believe or accept that art can exist for art's sake, arguably, Goya believed that art should ultimately make a difference. He uses his position as an illustrato to lampoon, satirize, and pillory various institutions, practices, and commonly held beliefs, end quote. And he did that in the pursuit of a more fair, more just, or at least more transparent about its flaws society. Goya's aim was potentially to visually shame or mock the wrongdoers into, one, recognizing that, you know, the people had caught on, and two, to straighten up their acts. Now again, these two artists from totally different countries, from nearly 50 years apart, and yet they share quite a bit of commonality that's worth looking into. For one, they're not afraid to go after commoners or institutions or anyone in between. Both do so with a purpose. Their criticism is meant to be constructive. It's meant to encourage the wrongdoers or immoral persons to do better for themselves and for society. Both artists, Gerico and Goya, used contemporary and often grotesque and or haunting imagery to have very strong emotional and moral impacts on their viewers. And both artists took their mediums to new heights. They surpassed their predecessors in terms of 
style and stylistic evolution, technical ability, and breaking barriers or norms of the arts in their day. And once the floodgates of political criticism in art were opened, they never ever closed again. (laughs) That's our story for the week, honeys. I hope you enjoyed the comparisons and the stories. Hope you learned a little something. If you have any thoughts, concerns, or questions about this episode or the contents in it, please feel free to DM us as always. We will get back to you as soon as possible. And I will see you next Sunday. Take care of yourselves. This podcast was created, produced, written, hosted, edited, and fact-checked by master's graduate Celia Bugno. Our upcoming music will be courtesy of Kelsey Weber. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe on all of your favorite streaming platforms as well as your social medias.